Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm your host, Josh Anderson, Assistant Professor of Art at Mount Mary University. Today, we're joined by Pete Schulte and Rubens Ganoff. They will be discussing their shared interest in mystic and esoteric artistic traditions, the syncretism that exists between representation and non-objectivity in their current work, the fallacy of binary critiques of art in relation to form and content, as well as the manner in which these interests influence their approach to pedagogy. Pete Schulte is an artist who lives and works in Birmingham, Alabama. He's Associate Professor of Art and Chair of the Drawing Area at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Schulte is also a co-founder with artist Amy Pleasant of the Fuel and Lumber Company Curatorial Initiative. He recently completed a summer-long residency at the Shinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas, and will present a solo exhibition of his work at McKenzie Fine Art in New York City later this fall. Rubens Ganov was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and immigrated to the U.S. in 1989. He lives and works in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he's an assistant professor of painting and drawing at the University of Tennessee. He recently concluded an affiliated fellowship at the American Academy in Rome, whose works will be in two upcoming shows, Symbols and Archetypes at Vanderbilt Fine Arts Gallery in Nashville, Tennessee, and a yet-to-be-titled show at Mindy Solomon in Miami. Pete and Rubens, thanks for joining me today. Take it away. Thank you, Josh. All right. Thanks, Josh. Um, so, wow, that, that intro sounded way uh, a lot more probably high-minded, I think. The inception of a lot of these conversations um, that we have amongst ourselves um, begins with. But yes, it's true that Rubens and I both share, uh, I think, an interest in certain forms of abstraction that, that are kind of removed or uh, out of like the canon of like form, strictly formalist abstraction. And art practices, I mean, I think one of the things we're going to probably talk about is the kind of lack of uh, relevance, I think, that 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 binary words like representation and abstraction uh, hold in terms of our interest and I think in, in both of our practices. So, you know, makers uh, who are kind of working in a mystical tradition, I think an obvious touchstone or point of departure, you know, that's very topical right now is like is like the art of Helma off Clint, uh, Emma Coons. Um, and artists like that, and I think there's certainly some more obscure artists that I think that we're probably both interested in, but I think as points of departure, those those would be two artists that, that have, have been topical in our conversations who are using um, largely, though not exclusively, uh, non-representational forms uh, that, that are kind of scratching at something far uh, deeper and, and far more maybe esoteric, but also far more human than I think a lot of like, you know, then, then I think at least I, and I, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I think that that's probably safe to say that we were taught about formalist, formalist uh, work with formalist properties. And I think what's interesting too is that, um, coming from a background in, let's say, a BFA in, in undergrad where many professors whom, I, I'm not sure about Pete, but in terms of uh, my own trajectory, that so many people, um, uh, whenever they would be uh, tied to the word abstraction, they would often uh, talk around that word or cancel out the word abstraction to talk about, no, this is, uh, these are conditions of my life, of my being that get indexed uh, abstractly into something that already is an abstraction, which is the condition of painting, right? Um, that's not a banana that's on the canvas, that is paint on canvas, ultimately. So um, I think those things began to uh, conflate at that time for me, um, 
uh, and not try to separate those two things, you know. And I think those those binaries all also fall off in many other things, not just abstraction and uh, representational things, but ideas of form and content, um, and even uh, conditions that deal with uh, P and I and our uh, interest in as it relates to mysticism or esoteric beliefs, traditions, and things like that, that then get indexed into a formal language such as painting. And you know, I, mean, I think another uh, another aspect of this is, for me, is things that, and a lot of artists that we talk about or musicians that we talk about, um, in terms of contemporary practice, or, or at least in that, that I think we're both interested in, are are things that come to you as an audience or as a viewer in a certain way that seems all wrapped up neat. Like I get this, right? Like I, I understand where so-and-so is coming from here because of the language that they're using. And then the artists that I'm talking about specifically um, are artists that come to you in that way that, with that, that kind of note of familiarity, and then they totally dismantle the form from within. Mm -hmm. So we think a lot about um, like certain like, like game-changer artists as, as always being a radical break with what came before. And I think a lot of our discussions of, of, and a lot of things I've been internally interested in for, for a long time are these kind of uh, people who are actually working with, from within a form to totally dismantle it. Um, maybe, maybe that's not the intention. That's the kind of the outcome. You know, when we were talking in our preparations for this conversation, somebody who's been on my mind a lot for the last few years is an artist like Terry Allen. Um, and I think it's probably easier to talk about his, his, uh, his music as opposed to, to the visual work to demonstrate this. Although I think for him, it's just one umbrella that covers, covers everything. But like the music, for example, comes to you sounding like, you know, West Texas country music. Mm -hmm. And then he's completely <clears throat> cutting the form down at its knees at every single turn. Like, and you, you can tell immediately that it, 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 it is not, what it initially appears like if you just flip we're, we're turning the dial on a radio station not that anybody does that anymore but if you were and you came across one of his songs and you paused on it for 10 seconds you would think oh i got this and then whether you're not you're interested or not you would you would stay or move on but if you gave it say a minute all of a sudden your uh, perceptions about that start to totally crumble right, right. And, and i think a lot of you know, musicians particularly you know, in the in in the 70s, where really you saw a lot of that happening. It's still happening, but like you know, in different idioms, where you know, like Don Cherry, who came from this totally right. jazz tradition, and I think that's definitely a point of departure for both Rubens and I. Um, comes to comes to you totally in a jazz tradition, and then all that completely starts to splinter after about a few minutes of listening to some of those <laughs> records. I'm really excited by whenever I see that happen. Um, whether it be in the visual arts or in 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 music, and I, you know, somebody like John McLaughlin um, is, is the painter. John McLaughlin is a lot like that, where it looks like very much '70s era formal abstraction, but the way those things hum and vibrate, you realize there's just a whole different kind of vibe or energy going on with these works that it's communicating far differently than that canon does. Yeah, and yeah, I, I start thinking of people like Sun Ra um, that within a discography you can't necessarily look at a timeline and think oh this record should be way more experimental because it's later and then he sort of goes back to uh dealing with almost a big band sound you know um 
uh, or even people like Hilma Afklant that worked serially, but then um, would have text in her work and then forms that were completely um, almost sacred geometry, you know, um, that those, those things kind of go back and forth. I start thinking of Donna Nelson, who was uh, a professor, you know, that uh, has no uh, boundaries in terms of when she reasserts the figure back into the work or when things are on the wall or things are off the wall, you know, um, those are for me breaths of fresh air as it relates to a future that is much more non-binary, you mm-hmm. know, where things are conflated, holistic. Well, and I think too, you know, like a, a contemporary of, of Donna Nelson's that's really meant tons to me and to my practice, even though it's certainly, I don't think it's visible at all, but I think just her approach to art is the way Amy Solman states very explicitly. Mm-hmm. Like I, I never felt like I was, I had to make a decision between using the figure or not using the figure. And indeed yeah. that's what sparks fly <clears throat> is the where in, in that work. And, and there's just, there's so much vitality and energy to that work. Um, and, and it usually kind of comes at that point where both of those traditions start to kind of collide and it's her, not not inability to reconcile them it's her absolute refusal to reconcile them and have that be the 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 kind of main thrust of 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 the work just as you know she would it seems to me that that there's there's you know there's no desire to kind of reconcile you know traditionally like what you call something is it drawing is it painting there's a great lecture that she gave at the Menil uh, Drawing Institute um, where she was talking about the difference between drawers and painters and how she totally identifies with, you know, the way the, the, the drawers and and how it's, there's this kind of sense of, of tactility and working from the ground up instead of this bird's eye view that she sees happening with, with painting uh, more often than not. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, that's another, I think, case in four, just those sorts of what do you call something? How do you define it? They, they just, they seem to be like at the disservice of possibility, you know, and, and I know that that's tr- certainly something that, that enters into the classroom a lot is, is, yeah. is students really want to know um, where something fits. You know, they, they so often come in with this idea of a, tell me what the problem is. B tell me how to solve the problem and C I want to know the outcome before I begin and, you know, we have to have very kind of clear conversations about that's not how things roll in here. And that's what the excitement is. And then getting in the spirit of that is where I think like the energy really starts to to kind of come alive. And and then it's like, you know, well, is, can I use this material? Or can I use that material in this class? And I'm like, you know, because we call this class drawing, I kind of a lot of times have to come to the fact, I don't care what you call it. Let's I, I care about how it feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's. That can be strange territory in in pedagogy, I think. That's one thing sometimes, too, that I try to relate to the students when it relates to art is that our eyes are looking externally. Um, I use the example of just driving in a car, but you're so deep in thought while you're driving in a car that the images that you're actually seeing isn't the asphalt and or the people around the street. You're thinking about uh, a certain moment that happened when you were seven because the street all of a sudden brought that that memory. And so uh, 
I oftentimes think that, you know, we, we sort of have this double eye eyeball, one that looks within into your psyche, one that looks outside. And I think that that is the, the place where these things begin to, to merge um, when then they become indexed into the painting, that they have a, a form to, uh, again, to conflate the psychic with the, with the external you know? I think in your work and my work, we we uh, play along those those lines. There are things that are perhaps notably uh, more abstract, um, and then there are these sort of systems that come from the external world, and that they um, they are adhered together, you know. Um, which is something that I think it's actually quite human. It's not that abstract, you know. Um, it's uh, it's how we live, you know. Will you will you talk, Rubens, a little bit? Uh, you really talked when we were preparing for this, or in our conversation that we had about this. You, you talked about um, the idea of, of, as we were talking about representation, you were talking about the idea of skin uh, within within an abstract painting or non-objective painting. Do you remember that? <laughs> I I'm trying to 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 navigate backwards. Um, I'm not quite sure if I remember, but um, I think I was talking about form also, you know, that um, that to disassociate form from content is so erroneous because uh, your skin is the way that it is because of all the things that are underneath that you can't quite see. You know, we call those things that we can't quite see content and we call those things that we can see form, but they're attached to each other, you know. Liver spots are a condition that display something that's happening in the body. You know, uh, my teenage boy with acne is revealing something that is happening from within. You know, the the two are connected and tied again from one another, you know, and I think sometimes students think about, well, I don't want to be a formalist because I don't want to just make art about art, you know, not, not understanding that whatever form is coming through them is the way that they are relating to, let's say the history of painting, but a history that, uh, that they are somehow adhering themselves intellectually to, but that's also connecting, uh, memory, uh, uh, spaces, color, uh, ideas of uh, that have taken place in their lives, vis-a-vis these these conditions. You know, so I think I I don't know if that was exactly what we talked about in terms of skin, but that's usually the way that I end up thinking about form and content. You know, Pete, I like what you had to say about the disservice of possibility, and I feel like that is something that we're always trying to bring to light with students without holding their hand in a lot of ways. And then, you know, Rubens, you were talking about um, the place, the inner self versus seeing the exterior world simultaneously. Do either of you have specific rituals that you feel like you fall into to arrive um, at that moment of confluence faster now that you've been practicing art for a number of years? And if you have a ritual, is there a way that you try to tr- uh, teach that practice to your students so that they may too arrive at their voice or sensibility at a faster rate? Yeah, yeah. I oftentimes ask my students, especially those with studio, how they get into into the studio, right? Um, 
uh, I've become somewhat wary of people that just walk in, pick up a brush and just go at it. You know, I, I, I have many students that do that, you know, or contemporary peers that, that will go that route. No, no. Um, for me, I come into the studio and my studio is located in the university. So I'm already blasted with all types of distractions when I'm coming up the steps, students asking me questions, uh, answering emails, faculty, blah, blah, blah. So when I went into the studio, I burn an incense stick, I make some tea, um, I choose the, the song that I'm going to listen to for the entire day. That might be a song that I'm listening to in the car. I put that song on loop or I will create a loop um, to listen to. At times that loop might change, but for the majority of the time, I'll listen to one song the entire time during the studio. And that takes me quite a bit. And then I just go and sit in front of the work for a long time. Um, and then oftentimes, if I'm in the studio for eight hours, I might actually just physically paint for about an hour out of those eight hours. There's a lot of looking, there's a lot of uh, thinking and or even just drawing in my head, you know. But that kind of three-step process ritual may actually sound somewhat trite, but it, it puts me in a space. So that's one of the things that I ask the students, you know, what kinds of rites you partake with to get your mind clear, to uh, not get distracted, you know, to come in and be able to be in the moment there. You know, uh, I have them uh, sort of set up in the studio uh, in a way that they would find it to be somewhat akin to a home, you know, as opposed to just a place where they just throw paint on canvas, you know. What about you, Pete? I mean, I think that I, it's funny because you're describing a, a, a some, we have a somewhat similar thing. Like I, I, I have some things that I go through um, before I kind of begin. Um, and sometimes it really depends. After just coming off, I was just at Chinati Foundation over the summer, and I, I find that my whatever that sort of entryway into the space is kind of changes depending on the space or the or the location. Um, you know, and it, it, it's you know I, I do some things I think very similar in terms of just like you know using like sage in the space and things like that, all things that a younger version of myself would have absolutely just rolled his eyes at, you know, right, right. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> how he'd be some of the stuff is, but, um, but really like the, the ritual, I think I learned a lot about, I, I've kind of drawn my way to everything in my life, you know, mm. it's not just my studio practice. It, it is the way that I, I live my life. Um, but as it pertains to art, the, the drawing, or the making is always is always led me, and mo more often than not, that takes the form of of drawing. Mm -hmm. So to kind of relate it to what you're talking about, Rubens, like I, I think drawing is what taught me how to meditate in a certain way, um, and and so then I, if drawing leads me, then I always end up kind of doubling back once I've learned about it, and then and then try to um, do it in a more focused way where it was very kind of intuitive or instinctual. Um, and then I kind of build that into to my studio practice um, or or routine, and and then it just becomes the biggest thing for me is just being in that space, and and this is something that goes back to to even very naively how I formulated like my spaces in grad school, um, as 
as kind of um, a framed space where if I was in that space, that was the site of production, regardless of, of kind of what I was doing, as you mentioned. Um, but 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 also then to put a little finer point on it, it is really about being in the act of drawing as often as I can, because that's the space where honestly I get the most joy and where I feel probably the most comfortable and able to kind of navigate and negotiate a lot of things in my, my, my world. It's where I'm able to slow things down. So that is a form of meditation. Right. right, right. Uh, and then I think I, I try to, to set up a, a, a situation in the classroom that's conducive for those types of things for students. But I also think that on some level it's allowing the classroom to be kind of like an open and fluid lab in a lot of ways where, um, people can kind of, they're there and they're expected to work and I think work hard, but then it's also not so rigid that, you know, when you hit that dry spot, you, you're you able to just move through the room and have a dialogue and look at what people are doing. It's kind of, you know, sounds really simple. I think like setting up that environment is, is also uh, very helpful, but then also being really open about my own practice as an artist. Like I, I've encountered, um, professor artist professors um instructors things like that that are very closed off and very private about their own practice mm. and i think that that's i i just the way that we've been talking i think right is, is 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 that it's very apparent that the way that we live our life and the way that we make work are very synced up and linked and i feel very disingenuous if i only go into the classroom and talk about things like technique and sure. don't and don't allow um the stuff of life to to enter into it both in how i talk about myself and my own work and how i talk about other artists work um because i think that's where you know let's face it i think anybody the, the technique can always be found by somebody who's motivated um but living life as an artist is a much i think much more challenging thing and i think i found that's what students really want to hear about is like right you know, how do you do this <laughs> you know like i can I, I can learn how to render this but I don't know how to negotiate these other kind of aspects of being an artist. And sometimes that as a, as a teacher makes me feel vulnerable in ways that I'm, I don't always love, but I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like in order to be, I just feel like I'm being disingenuous if I don't allow that to be part of the, the pedagogy as well. By all means. Yeah. By all means. So, so what are some of the tools that you feel like you've developed and that are successful in um, kind of, going back to that disservice of possibility to prevent students from needing that definitive answer or that definitive object. What are some of the things that you do in the classroom when you see your students' um, tendency for uh, moving in, in that direction of sort of closing the door on all the possibilities? It's a difficult question because I don't think there's really a formula. It's really what's going on in that day, what's going on specifically with that student. Um, so often it's really when students seem to have, you know, as you guys have all experienced, when students have to have breakthroughs, it's not that big grand statement that was made or, you know, this artist that you showed them. It's really just a moment of simple permission, you know, like, yes, this is okay. Mm -hmm. You know, um, or, um, you know, that kind of index finger pointing to that you know, one inch square on a, you know, 48 by 60 drawing and saying, pay attention to that. You know, what about this? Tell me more about that. 
And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, and that's often usually the, the aspect they're most engaged with, but they're feeling the most unsettled about because when we're growing and moving forward, I just think so often those, those, um, those spaces are very unsettling. And, and so to just, it's just kind of a, a permission, I think that comes up. So I wish I, Josh, I had like a really concrete, like, this is the way you do it. I, yeah. That's uh-huh. just not how it ever works. <laughs> kind of me at least. Um, in drawing classes, end up uh, my drawing classes end up being quite different than my painting classes. Usually, uh, within within the first month, I'm telling my painting students to already bring their own headphones so that they can listen to the specific music that they um, are attached with. Whereas in drawing class. I end up being the DJ and I take off everybody's earphones and then I end up playing musics over uh, film dialogues, um, uh, languages they don't comprehend or music that is um, uh, instrumental in nature. And um, that simultaneously, and oftentimes the music at first jars the students because they might have not heard it or they think it's uh, screechy or noise or what have you. Um, but I often call music in the drawing classroom as the second professor. It's the mm. thing that massages mm-hmm. their mind to allow themselves to uh pierce into their own strangeness you know if this thing that is playing off of spotify is allowed to be played by spotify whatever strangeness i might have within me it should be allowed to enter into (laughs) the the project you know um but those things are more surreptitious they're clandestine in the classroom they don't necessarily are um proposed as the thing that will teach you thusly you know um but there is a lot of conversation i'm currently reading mark fisher's uh, the weird and the eerie now which i've been uh, wanting to give as a text to my senior painting students uh, because he makes a, a a big distinction between the fantastical idea of the strange to the actual strange the the weary the the eerie and the and the weird and he talks about that you know in in a in a fantasy place you begin to accept things that we in normal life call the strange so therefore those things don't become strange anymore because they're contextualized right um whereas and he begins to talk about lovecraft in this way that all of a sudden in this normal world of furniture we see every day there's an abnormal pra- presence entering in and that's when the weary and the ear and the, that's where the weird and the eerie begin to to enter into the space you know and that's something that for the student body uh I'm interested in no matter how normal these students at times may be they do carry that strange uh, and, and at times furtive conditions within them that it can uh, it, it, that that should secrete indexically into the work you know can you say more about the discussion surrounding abstraction and figuration what I'm talking about when we're talking about those things I mean that kind of binary read abstraction figuration that's something i think it's not something that i think rubens or i really find very present or valid in terms of our own work but i think students bring that in a lot mm-hmm. right you know especially at that really like you know first year students um you know so often the criteria for judging work is like 
oh my gosh, it looks really realistic, you know? And so <laughs> then that's a really, you know, and again, I think that's understandable, you know, depending on background and things like that, that they'll come in, but that's often the criteria. And so pedagogically, rather than say like, okay, that's, you need to be gentle in how you kind of, um, I think, work with that sort of uh, response to work. So like something like, you know, well, is it is it possible to make a representational image uh, or a figurative drawing without drawing the figure? Can you imply the figure here? You know, can the sense of touch that you used to make the drawing be for an analog for for the image just as, as one of, of, of example and then you know you start to, to bring those questions start from that very rudimentary place and start to evolve and then you i think what happens well at least what i've observed a lot with, with really engaged students is that they they realize that they can work kind of between those spaces and not give up a sense of humanity within the works, right? A, a sense of being or presence in the work, because that's what they're trying to hold on to is something recognizable on a certain level, you know, but then when they kind of recognize them, themselves in the work or recognize an emotion or feeling that becomes a representation, right? So the the drawing, um, the drawings and it can become kind of a, a, a surrogate for whatever they're trying to represent uh, initially. And it's important to, to remember what they're talking about when they talk about it looks realistic because they're talking about an illustration, right? And they, they start to evolve and realize that feeling is, um, or emotion can be much more powerful than just a mere uh, representation of something, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that, that that's hopefully the, the kind of trajectory that can kind of uh, evolve or progress from that rather rudimentary initial criteria for quality in work, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, the figure especially um, is such a strange criteria to talk about uh, this because it ends up being a portal oftentimes for the thing that is recognizable, not only recognizable, I am something that that thing looks like. Um, but if all of a sudden if the painting becomes a mirror of of sorts, it also can absorb the mirror of the psyche, again, of those things that within the human are not seen, you know. Um, and I think that's when paintings that deal with the figure um, perhaps then are even more abstract, you know. It goes back then to the idea of Fisher's weird and eerie. There's something here that I understand, but then I don't understand why there's text floating in the sky without a plane, you know, or in case of like Neo Rauk or, uh, or I don't know, Sanya Kantarovsky, you know, um, um, where things begin to amalgamate in a way that we don't necessarily see them happening in life. I often think that I often think that these things that are quote unquote called representational begin to be. I don't. I don't want to say that they are always a portal, but they they play on the familiar, slightly becoming eerie. You know, the longer you uh, you stay with it. You know, he early on mentioned Hilma and Emma Coombs. You know, but I think that the word art, oftentimes, especially in the academic uh, arena, um, becomes a stumbling block for students. 
And what I mean by that is that they are automatically thinking about making something beautiful that will hang in someone's house, as opposed to the context that Pete started the conversation with, with Hilma Afklin and Emma Coons, that those paintings were made uh, for completely different uh, ideas or ideals, you know, or we can go back to last call caves, you know, um, or things that nowadays we call we call art but which were religious objects for specific kinds of praxis you know and i think it's really interesting for me in the classroom and i think pete coincides with this a bit that uh, uh, there's an attempt to go back to that kind of a world you know maybe this painting won't hang in someone else's house but this is a way for you to uh, get through barriers to let's say fight demons right uh, uh, realize yourself anew through a whole new set of ideas to deal with the things that are within uh, almost as if they were doing mystically you know so that they can have a, a clear opening to thoroughly push themselves in and index this unseen thing you know as opposed to just making works that will be at this gallery or museum or someone else's house, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, w why there's probably so much renewed interest in, in you know, both of those artists among many others uh, in the last, you know, it's probably what, 15, 20 years ago, I started hearing, you start hearing about him off Clint, but I think especially in the last decade, you know, this work is 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 just come so powerfully to the fore is because I think part of this is the the result of the culture that we live in. I mean, this isn't divorced from what our interests are. Not only the art that's produced, but what our interests are in art of the past is that how powerful that story is of this person that felt this drive and need to make this work for this other purpose and intention and you know i think her her idea if i remember the quote correctly is that i don't want to be seen for 20 years because the world's not even ready for them you know it's it's the the desire um for people in contemporary culture to find work that has a real deep meaning it's not this digestible um like you know something that is on the swipe of your screen something that can hold you longer uh you know same with emma coons i mean she was she was saw herself as a medium i mean these had not really artistic purpose in, in their time and i just think the so much of the interest uh in that work is that it kind of moves outside of the transactional system you know right. and, and into a realm of of deep spirituality and meaning what are some of the things that um catch you that you that you find an affinity with uh, that relates to some of the things that you're that you're talking about I mean, works that I respond to are, are things that seem to be beyond simply um, this is about art or this is part of just simply that kind of transactional market aspect of, of the marketplace, you know, even though those those things exist as facts. Um, but I don't the, the thing and I think this is what's difficult about those that kind of question is that again it's kind of like the question you asked earlier about teaching it's there doesn't there's not a formula and i'm often surprised where that sort of visceral thing that bypasses the intellect and and goes you know straight to that space if you want to call it behind your sternum um, kind of it, it hits you in this way and, and then it, it it 
you know, this all, I guess we, we kind of started this conversation by talking about the esoteric and the mystic. And again, I'm, I'm thinking about this younger version of myself rolling his eyes at this kind of conversation, but it is what I about. And, and it's not like looking for something that has a look. It's much more of a visceral feel, you know, whether that be, you know, Mirandi's still lifes or the, the, the tantric uh, meditation drawings or, um, you know, a James Bishop painting or something like that. Like, I, to me, I'm always surprised at how different the things are that are really meaningful and that affect me in that very profound way than, than the similarities or the parallels. Does that, does that make sense? I think you rephrase that brilliantly. I, I mean, in the sense that we're not objectively looking for things as we navigate the world necessarily, but right. um, that we're caught off guard sometimes in those moments of how we are responding, you know, that, um, they speak to us in these different ways. Yeah. yeah. Ruben, do you want to take a better crack at that than I did? Uh, no, I think uh, <laughs> it's such a complex, uh, it's just a complex question because it deals with how things are composed, when you enter, what the context is, how big that thing is, what color, what's your mind state at that time, uh, what's happening politically, what's happening, uh, you know, all of those things again amalgamating at one specific time that create this um uh this experience or this new way of seeing that is is really complex to like you said ideologically put it into a formula it's 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 impossible you know um but it is something that not only artists are find look for or attempt at it's yeah, it, it's everywhere. You have a conversation with someone down the street and they're just looking at a, a, a dry puddle of, of oil on the ground and they start talking about family members that have gone, you know? <laughs> I think uh, the way that those things arrive in us goes back to what you said, Josh. It's, it's, you, get, you get caught off guard oftentimes as well. You know? Well, and I think that the idea of like timing, it's kind of that intersection of all of that is really crucial to those things. And, and, and then... You know, like for me, like I'm, I'm I mean, the first time I remember really like experiencing and I think that's different than just simply looking at something. Mm -hmm. But the first time I experienced an Agnes Martin painting, I wasn't thinking about the Agnes Martin painting. I was thinking about when I was four years old and I walked it in a Wrigley Field with my dad. <laughs> There's a, a similar sense of like purely being present and 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 completely unfettered by all of the kind of um colliding narratives that normally were happening in my head when i encountered that painting and it reminded me of that really innocent time of of of, of the way i felt when i was a young child you know mm -hmm. i think like that's the you know and, and just how generous that, that that those paintings that group of paintings were they were not trying to tell me about the artist, they were allowing me that space to kind of reflect on that aspect of, of my own life or, or like the luggage that I carry with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pete and Rubens, this has been a fantastic conversation and I wish we all lived uh, closer together so we could continue this in person. Thank Indeed, you for joining yeah. us with this podcast. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Thank you, Pete.